This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Yoalia Rodriguez. How can we imagine other forms of life? And how can we imagine other forms of relation with the land, with the water, with our communities, with our bodies as territories, with care, with solidarity, with love, with tenderness, but also with rage, because rage is also powerful, and with grief and with sadness. Yoali Rodriguez is an educator, vinyl selector, and writer, born and raised in Mexico, but currently based in the U.S., they are currently an assistant professor in anthropology and sociology and Latin American and Latinx studies at Lake Forest College, Illinois. They are interested in subjects of anti-colonial, anti-racist, feminist struggles, political ecology, and state violence. Well, Yoali, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to diving deep with you. Thank you so much, Ayana, for having me. And I'm also looking forward for this beautiful and fluid conversation. Mm -hmm, Me too. Well, to begin, I want to start by introducing listeners to your study of land specifically. So I'm wondering what brought you to this work and can you give us a glimpse into the importance of grounding critiques of state control and violence within conversations about geographies? Yeah, of course. Well, for me personally, while I was doing my research, I was like, why am I coming back always to the land and to geography and to human, non-human like interactions? And I think it all has its roots in my own family. My grandfather on my mother's side, he was a farmer and he was a farmer who was organizing for the conservation and for the protection of communal land in the northern part of Mexico. So my mom grew up also as a farmer. And so I feel that that connection to the land has always been in my family. They were organizing to, yeah, just to have communal land for people and growing food and growing uh, in nature. So I feel that in the end, you know, those cycles of life, uh, I ended up after uh, doing uh, my research about uh, land and this intimate, emotional, affective connection in between land and, in this case, water, because I did my research in Mexico, but in the south uh, east part of Mexico, in Oaxaca, in the Pacific coast, in a Black indigenous community. A community is around a body of water, uh, lagoons. And when I was doing this, I started realizing uh, once I ha- was having conversations with uh, a lot of uh, local people that when we think of geography 
especially racialized geographies where Black and Indigenous people that have been communities that have been also erased intentionally by settler states such as Mexico, because I think usually we think of settler states as the U.S., Canada, Australia, you know, where these uh, Native American theorists have uh, think about this. But I would also try to think of how Mexico and Latin America has also settler colonial states uh, that also erase and also uh, try to displace racialized communities. And that is the case that I was working in. Uh, these Chacawa lagoons, that's the name of the lagoons, is a body of water that for the past 20 years has been basically facing ecological degradation. But this ecological degradation, of course, not only affects uh, the lagoon by itself, that is a body, a body of water that is so beautiful, full of life with mangroves, with so many like non-human species that live there. But also, of course, it is the primary source of living for all the communities around the lagoon. So if you are intentionally not paying attention to, to this lagoon, even if local communities are demanding for solutions, then you're also doing another form of annihilation of Black and Indigenous communities, and in this case, of state responsibility uh, of uh, environmental racism against uh, Black and Indigenous communities in the now so-called nation of Mexico. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for starting us off in that way. Well, this reminds me of your article, Everyday Resistances to Environmental Racism, Mestizo Geographies, and Toxicity in Oaxaca. You write, quote, propose the term Mestizo Geographies to refer to the Mexican nation state's material process of slowly erasing and trying to eliminate Black, Indigenous, and non-Mestizo people and territories throughout dispossession, displacement, as well as through pollution, tourism, and toxicity, end quote. So how does the very concept of the nation state enforce politics of displacement and dispossession? And how is Mexico uniquely positioned as a settler state? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think uh, that would be one of the core uh, thoughts and ideas of my research and, and future book. And basically what I'm trying to say with uh, these mestizo geographies, uh, basically when the Spanish colonial power was in, in Mexico that was known as New Spain. And then Mexico became finally an uh, independent nation. So when basically the Mexican state was founded as a nation by itself, independence from the colonial power of Spain, uh, there was a continuation of these colonial legacies and colonial uh, powers, even though it was now an independent nation. And part of this construction of the Mexican or Mexico as a nation was trying to build a nation that would unify all these diverse uh, populations of indigenous people, black people, uh, et cetera, mestizo people, uh, European descent people that were living there, Spaniards uh, that were basically settled there, also the, the children of them, the descendants. So basically all this diversity of people were there. So when the nation state was founded by itself, it was this big question of how are we gonna unify or homogenize this nation called Mexico? So there were a lot of uh, thinkers, philosophers, one of them, uh, his, no, his name is Jose Vasconcelos. 
uh, he's one of the architects of this ideology of mestizaje and mestizaje basically means mixture and mixture of uh, of people of races in his in his uh, words. However, this mixture of mestizaje meant that within time, black and indigenous people would disappear because the ideal was uh, the white uh, population. So in the end, mestizaje can be think of as a whitening project where through mixing of all these races, five races that he was describing, in the end, black and indigenous would disappear either through acculturation or integration or also just by elimination. So if we think through that, then uh, mestizo geographies, uh, what I'm trying to, to say with this is that this is only a continuation of colonial legacies where also Black and Indigenous people up until now, 2022, are being constantly dispossessed, erased, trying to be erased and invisibilized from the nation, just as when Mexico as a state was founded. And I said that it's a, also a settler colonial state because the settlers also came to Latin America and specifically to Mexico and they stayed and they took over land. And that happened also uh, when it became an independent nation, like the Mexican government basically said, you know, like this is the territory from this limit, uh, geographical limit to till this limit, this is federal property. Uh, and with this basically ownership of the land by the Mexican state, you're displacing black and indigenous people. You're also uh, trying to control sovereignty that uh, Black and Indigenous people have over their land and over their own cultures. And this has been only a colonial legacy. So the things that we saw in the colonial past, obviously it has evolved in different mechanisms and strategies, but the violence uh, continues, racism continues. And the other big uh, complex thing about Mexico is that uh, when this ideology of mestizaje was created, it was also created in the context of trying to uh, have an anti-imperialist uh, agenda. Uh, they were trying to compare Latin America and Mexico to the U.S., saying like we're not like the U.S. In the U.S., the Jim Crow law was, you know, happening. Uh, segregation was a big thing in in the U.S. at the same time. So Latin America and specifically Mexico were trying to say like we're not like the U.S. We're not racist like the U.S. So in our case, we are not segregating people. We are not uh, committing quote unquote genocide against uh, indigenous people. What we're doing is basically mixing all of us. And because we're mixing all of us uh, and we will be one big uh, quote unquote race, the cosmic race, uh, that's how Jose Vasconcelos was referring to then racism is not possible in Mexico because we will all be mixed. So that has been a narrative that up until now, people still believe that in Mexico, that in Latin America, racism doesn't exist because in this myth, we are all uh, a mix of all the races. And that has created a big problem because people don't like to talk about racism in Mexico. Nowadays, a little bit, the conversation has been opening but that has been part of this uh, complex uh, conversation about racism and even further uh, in regards to environment. A lot of the environment uh, conversations in Mexico and environmental struggles are mostly around uh, class 
or uh, just like, you know, like farmers, organizations, peasant organizations, but racism is usually not at the center of the conversation. And I think that is urgent because it's not a coincidence that in Latin America and specifically in Mexico, almost all the land that has been uh, dispossessed by transnational projects, mega projects, mining, gas, but also tourism and pollution is in Black and Indigenous territories. That is not a coincidence. And that is part of the environmental racism that has been denied, but yet it exists and we have a proof of it. So just like in the Chacawa Lagoons. Yeah. Hmm. The framework that you're using recognizes geography outside of state control mapping and narratives. And this really makes me think of the power in recognizing Black geographies. In an article for the African-American Intellectual Historical Society, Rami Opperman explains that Black ecology, quote, means Black thinkers, movements, and communities that have refused the ruse that capitalism, the state, heteropatriarchy, and the domination of more than human nature are the means and ends of justice and freedom, end quote. Yeah, I'm wondering what does it look like to refuse these ruses and how do we best honor the legacies of such resistance? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And that is something that I also been thinking through with uh, the communities uh, it is important also to say that I position myself as a mestiza woman uh, in the context of Mexico, so I'm not Black or Indigenous, so that has been also part of the of the conversation with them, of the complex conversation about uh, how uh, racism and racialized communities uh, have been yeah, constantly dispossessed and how in my in my personhood as a mestiza woman, uh, I have these conversations with the communities. So I think that politics of refusal is a big thing in the communities in Oaxaca and across Mexico. And this politics of refusal is a refusal of erasure, is a refusal to cede uh, the land to the settler colonial state of Mexico. And this politics of refusal is not only by doing actively and, as you would say, like legible acts of resistance, such as protest. You know, uh, the case of the Chacawa Lagoons have been brought to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. There's also national reports of human rights made by local people. So not only legible forms of resistance, but I'm also interested in these everyday illegible for some people, forms of resistance and refusal. And that is, for example, taking care of the lagoons, taking care of the community, taking care of the children. Uh, how is the relationship of the women in the communities with this lagoon that is almost dying in front of their eyes? And many of these is uh, in regards to grief. Uh, when I was asking people, local people in the communities, what do they feel? because that was very important to, for me, like to think about affect and, and feelings. How do they feel about a lagoon that is dying in front of their eyes? They would uh, say, you know, nostalgia, sorrow, anger, rage. So all these uh, feelings that in the end describe grief, 
So they were grieving and they are grieving uh, the possible loss of, of their life. So these politics of refusal are not only by, uh, you know, an acknowledging that it's an ancestral land of existence of their own uh, people, Black and Indigenous ancestral lands, but also by taking care of, of their land by, for example, cleaning the lagoons, by uh, going to some canals that are connected to other sources of oxygen, by trying to grow again some fish, they say cultivate fish and also uh, regrow mangroves in the lagoons. So I think the politics of refusal to uh, the settler colonial state are not only in the legible ways, but also in these everyday acts of resistance of uh, defense of life and how, how more political, what more political it is that basically defending the life of your own community and your land and the water that you live by. And I feel that grief, Anisa, I would say that is a anticipated grief because the lagoon is still alive, but it is in very like you know it is in very in great risk of of dying soon. And this lagoon is dying because of several uh, government uh, decisions. For example, uh, they created uh, two breakwaters that were connected to the lagoon, supposedly to. Uh, create a balance in between a canal in between the lagoons and the ocean. Local people said, don't put those breakwaters there because maybe uh, that is going to change the course of the water in a negative way. Here first, we saw a first epistemological violence or violence in regards to knowledge and not recognizing a local knowledge as value. Uh, because these people from the government and companies said, like, you know, we have titles of engineers, so we know what we're doing. And what happened was basically exactly what local community said, like these breakwaters that they built uh, basically disconnected permanently the lagoons from the ocean. So now the lagoons is an isolated body of water that is not receiving the oxygen that it has to receive. There is also a factory of lime oil a transnational factory that is U.S. owned, that is drawing all the all the waste to the lagoons through canals. So that is highly acidic and toxic. And also we have pesticides that are being used around the area. Uh, there's a, a lot of growing of papaya, slime, and all these pesticides in the end come to the lagoon. So, you know, there's so many factors. But the fact is that the politics of refusal are going not only in mainstream ways, but also in this reproduction of life by taking care of each other in the community, by taking care of the lagoon. These little acts of care, of love in between human and non-human. But this is main, mainly, as I say, and I am trying to explore also, is fueled by grief because this grief that they feel, makes them feel rage, make them feel sorrow, make them feel nostalgia about how the lagoon used to be. And it's very painful to see a lagoon in front of your eyes that smells bad, that you cannot touch it, even though it's very hot in that area, you cannot touch it because you can get, you know, allergies in your skin. So all this kind of sensory body to body, water body to another body of water that is human body, all this interaction that is sensorial and sensual also is being limited by all these uh, 
institutional violences against a racialized black and indigenous geography. So this grief that they're feeling, I feel that that is also the fuel to mobilize, not only as I said in mainstream ways, but also in the everyday life of care and love for the community, for the children, but also for the lagoons. I want to stay on this topic of grief a little bit more. I was talking to a friend last night and I could tell that he was uncomfortable with ecological grief or rage, sadness, because he felt that it wasn't healthy or you know, kind of questioning what is that doing for us to have these feelings or be frustrated or full of anger for those who are making the decisions to destroy our lands, our lagoons, our oceans, etc. And I definitely had a pretty strong response that was also compassionate, but I'd love to hear you speak to what you see the necessity of grief being why do you think it's important? Do you have a sense that people are afraid to feel grief and why? Yeah, that is a very uh, intimate topic for me. So uh, while I was doing my research, I was, it was, that happened from 2017 to till 2018. So I was for a year in the communities in Oaxaca doing this research. Uh, when I came back from my research in August uh, 2018, back to Austin to write uh, my dissertation, one day I received a call from my mother and she's like, you know, they found something in my uh, medical uh, tests and I don't want you to worry, but uh, yeah, there's something that I don't know, they're trying to figure it out. And I felt something like I was like, no, this is not good. So basically, I took a flight back to Mexico because, you know, intuition. So I felt something and I went and uh, unfortunately, uh, she was diagnosed with liver cancer in basically advanced stage of cancer. So from the day that she was diagnosed till the day she passed away, that was like seven weeks. She was 59 so uh, that put me in a very, very, you know, it has been a life-changing experience. My mother, as I said, is my connection to land because she comes from farmers, ancestors, and to land. I'm even getting emotional. <laughs> and um, so that changed everything for me. I enter into a year of grief where I was trying to just survive because the pain was so deep that it was hard for me to think of anything else and I was full of all these emotions that people in the community told me I was full of rage I was full of sorrow I was full of nostalgia and I was full of yeah just this pain 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 like you know that you feel in every cell of your body and while I was doing all this grief work that now I know that it was necessary, I needed a space to slow down. We need a, we live in this, you know, capitalist system um, where we become also very like self-exploitative if we're not exploited by others. And I feel that grief gave me the moment and it obligated me to slow down. So I feel that grief is basically 
another ontological form of time. When you are grieving, you are living in another form of time. You don't care about, you know, these uh, very linear timelines. I think that while you're in grief, is a more fluid, cyclical form of time uh, where you disconnect from this other modern capitalist notion of time. And it's a time for slowing down because your body, basically all the energy that is happening in your body is just for survival, but also to think about your life, for also to think what are you going to do next? So uh, I share these with uh, the people in the community. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going through these. I needed to stop like also writing and I needed to pause for a second my research because yeah, basically I was just trying to survive my own grief and loss. And once I felt a little bit uh, better that I was able to breathe again and to center myself again and grounding, um, I felt also mirroring uh, the people in the community in this, in a different way, of course, this was my personal grief and that is also a collective grief for, of grief. But uh, in the end, I felt so many similarities mirroring, you know, collective grief, what it means home, my mother meant home for me, for them, the lagoons mean home. Um, so now then I start theorizing about uh, grief as a necessary way of resistance, but also I feel that it's also an anti-capitalist strategy, because as I said, when you are grieving, you slow down, you go back to a slow life. Of course, you need to take care of the, you know, the everyday necessities. You have to nourish yourself. You have to feed yourself. You have to work to uh, eat, to do whatever you need to do to cover the basic needs. But in the end, I feel that you're living in another form of time that is not the capitalist neoliberal time. So I feel that the grief that... Uh, people in the community leave this ecological grief is necessary because it actually is a moment of slowing down, slow your life in this very speedy time that almost is like an imposed time where you always have to be spitting and just, you know, running around, go to the next thing, your agenda full of things, uh, worrying about food, about the world, like all these systems of oppression, heterosis, patriarchy, all of that. But I feel that when you're grieving, when you have a time for grief, uh, it's, yeah, it's just another form of resistance because you are, again, refusing. It's another politics of refusal to an imposed time that doesn't allow us time to feel. Like, I feel that in these modern times, there's not even time to feel. You have to, you know, you get, you have a loss in your family. You have a loss in your land. And it's like, okay, move on. You will have one week and then move on. Go back to work or go back to your life. So I think a politics of refusal, an anti-capitalist practice of refusal, an anti-colonial form of resistance is in how you have time to slow down and feel. And I feel that when you slow down and feel this grief, that of course is scary because I feel that we are in general scared of death, even though it's gonna to happen to all of us, but we don't have a lot of talks about death. 
uh, it's scary, it's painful, but I think it's necessary that we start talking more about that, especially when um, it's affecting uh, collective uh, communities that have been um, historically erased and try to be displaced. So for me, grief is necessary and is also an act of refusal to slow down, to go against us, fast life. And yeah, just create another cyclical form of time where you have time to feel. And what is more, you know, more uh, resisting that in these times, just feel, feel and feel and cry and feel rage and feel uh, nostalgia. And I feel that that can be a fuel because once you have all these feelings and you're feeling them as the communities are doing, then it's the time to act. Because as I said, in their case, the lagoon is not completely there. So there's still hope. So there's this connection in between grief and hope because while the lagoon is still dying, it is still alive. So you're having all these uh, emotions of grief, of sorrow, nostalgia, rage, all these things that are, you know, bombarding your, your body and you slow down and you're feeling them and you are trying to understand what is happening. But at the same time, you know that you want to make the lagoon or the body of water or the land to survive, to live again. So you embrace that hope and you're like, okay, I'm going to try to do something to stop this ecocide, to stop this uh, environmental racism that is happening to the community. So that grief and that act of refusal of, no, I'm going to just deny what I'm feeling and I'm just going to keep going. I feel that stopping, feeling the sorrow, the grief. And what, when I say stopping, I don't mean that they stop like fishing or that they stop doing their everyday life. They need it. But what I say is that they actually actively are uh, in tune with their emotions and slowing down to think and feel what they're feeling in relationship to a non-human body. When you have that time, then you can think, okay, what are we going to do about this? So there is a direct connection uh, in between grief and hope. And I think that uh, even for me, as after my mom passed away, and it was deeply painful, after all my grief and now that I permitted myself uh, to have the time to slow down and have a more slow life and grief, uh, after that, I had hope because I was like, okay, what can I do in honoring my ancestor now and my ancestors? Like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do in regards to my work? How can I connect my own work and my own experience and my own ancestors and uh, connection with land, uh, with these communities? So that gave me another sense of life, another sense of uh, existence in this world, but also another sense of hope for the future. That every day slips into night Every word is a lie A movement of lips Gone as fast as a kiss From a lover of just one night
so much for sharing such personal bits of your life with us. I really felt your words and I could imagine a lot of folks listening will tune into their own grief and hopefully let go with us a bit in this moment. And yeah, there's so much in your response and I want to take a moment to, to, to recognize how do both land and humanity and relationship engage in practices of fugitivity and resistance? Yeah. Um, I feel that, as you said, like when we, and that is something that I've been thinking too, that, uh, there's a lot of work about ecological grief, but also I feel that sometimes um, it doesn't uh, engage a lot with, uh, you know, sometimes it is like this isolated like land uh, without actually saying uh, what are the intersections in between this grief. Like basically who is uh, causing uh, this ecological damage. And I think it's important that when we have an intersectional analysis of who is also being oppressed, we have also an intersectional analysis of who is doing it. And those have names, those have, uh, you know, qualities. In the case of Mexico, uh, obviously is the Mexican state, also is uh, transnational companies. So I think that that is important to, to analyze and I think that uh, this fugitivity, uh, I mean, first of all, these Black uh, communities that are in the coast, they were literally fugitives from slavery in Mexico. So they went to the coast to, uh, you know, they were maroon communities uh, that were uh, escaping from slavery in Mexico. And indigenous communities were also uh, trying to uh, escape from uh, colonial power. So we have one first, you know, uh, sense of fugitivity. Uh, if we connect that to what is happening now, I think the fugitivity is uh, not only in terms of fugitivity of the Mexican state geography as they want to create it to a limited space, but uh, a fugitivity of how Black and Indigenous geographies are fugitive. They're trying not to be uh, contained. They're trying not to be owned. They're trying not to be capitalized. And all those things are fugitive to a settler colonial state such as Mexico. Another thing of fugitivity is, I think, when we, again, when we have the time to feel when we connect our body with our land or what Lorena Cabnal from Guatemala says, cuerpo territorio, body territory, meaning these intimate connections. When we have the time to feel grief, love, care, sorrow uh, in regards to the land, but also to ourselves and our communities, I feel that that's another 
sense of fugitivity because you are also being fugitive from these uh, uh, modern impositions of only uh, thinking and or centering the, the rational of the human, the reason, the rational. And I think that when you connect to spiritual life, to feelings, to affect, you are also being a fugitive of these uh, capitalist colonial impositions. When you are uh, being fugitive, also, I mean, there's a lot of uh, trans, non-binary people in these communities. So when you're also, me, myself, I, I identify as a non-binary person. So when you are also uh, embodying, uh, you know, a not cis gender person, I feel that you're also being fugitive of all these colonial impositions. So I feel that there's so much, so much to be, that you see as politics of refusal and, and fugitivity. And this fugitivity is part of the resistance. But I feel that at the center of it is that we have to have time to feel and to connect to the spirit in however form we think of it, or we feel of it, or we sense of it. But I feel that is necessary more than ever in these times. Mm -hmm. Yes. In your article, Dying Lagoons Reveal Mexico's Environmental Racism, written with Jason Maurice Porter, you explain, quote, in 1938, the Chacoa Pastoria Lagoons were declared as a national park, a federally protected area by former President Lazaro Car Cardenas. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> However, this protection has been exclusively symbolic given the current polluted conditions of the lagoons. When conservation and protection of natural areas in the country entail federal property regulations, Black and Indigenous communities are left without legal ownership over the land and consequentially limited in their abilities to practice traditional relationships to land, end quote. And I'm wondering in what ways should we remain vigilant against certain narratives of, quote, preservation? And how do cases like these show the insidious state power over both human and more than human life? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question. Yeah, so I think that uh, national parks in many cases, but also in the case of Mexico, they are a huge paradox because, uh, as you read, uh, the National Park of the Chacawa Lagoons was created in 1938. It was supposedly to preserve and to be a protected federal area of natural conservation, quote unquote. But what I feel is uh, the paradox is that you have this, uh, you know, mainstream discourse of conservation, natural conservation, natural preservation. But almost all these discourses erase the communities, local communities that live there. So is this almost like colonial tropical fantasy of pristine nature and wilderness? And I think that is very uh, dangerous because you're doing another erasure and annihilation of, of the local people that live there because you're basically again, doing a colonial binary of nature and humans. 
And so in all these conservation policies that happen in Mexico, all these national parks, first of all, they become federal ownership. So that means that the state is the owner of these lands. So that means that all Black, Indigenous, and Mestizo populations that live around the Chacawa lagoons, they don't have basically legal rights over the land. They don't have titling, they don't have, you know, so basically they're living inside a quote-unquote federal property. So you are imposing with this law or this declaration of a, as a national park, you're not only uh, basically taking the ownership or uh, basically dispossessing people from their ancestral land, but you're also imposing rules because with the national park uh, for quote unquote conservation, there's also a lot of rules in regards to how they use the water, how they use the lagoons, how much they can fish, what plants, what animals. And I, I mean, these uh, communities have an ancestral, spiritual, uh, physical, emotional connection to the lagoons, uh, especially Black and Indigenous peoples that have traditions of food, cooking certain food, cooking certain fishes, cooking uh, using, you know, some mangrove. So basically, again, with these natural conservation discourses, one, you exclude the local population, like if they don't exist. And two, you criminalize the local people, Black and Indigenous, Mestizo population that live there. Uh, and you basically, they became, uh, again, bodies that are policed, racialized bodies that are policed by the state. And that is a big, big, even another paradox is that you have this policing of the bodies and communities that live there, that have lived there for centuries. But at the same time, the Chacawa Lagoons have uh, become a very, uh, you know, touristic spot, especially people coming from the global north, uh, especially white people, but also uh, national people, uh, usually from the cities, mestizo and white Mexicans coming from the cities from yeah, upper middle class. So while you're criminalizing and policing Black and Indigenous people in their own territory, and you are denying access to their own ownership and sovereignty over their own lands, you're also allowing international and national tourism to come here and, quote unquote, again, and I say this in a very ironic way because the state uh, uses this discourse of, you know, come to this natural paradise in the Pacific Ocean and come and be close to the nature. So they're selling nature as a commodity, as an exotic tropical fantasy that, again, is colonial. So basically, this national park of the Chacawa Lagoons become a commodity for outsiders. And meanwhile, there's an ecocide and violence happening in the everyday life for Black and Indigenous communities that live there and they're, they're being policed and that they're living environmental racism and that they're seeing how fish is dying. There has been a massive uh, fish dead. Uh, there was an earthquake in 2017 of 7.1 scale Richter. So it was a really big earthquake. And a couple of days after the earthquake, uh, approximately 40 tons of fish was, was found dead floating in the lagoons. 
So we're not talking about a little, you know, ecocide. Like this is happening in massive ways. Uh, the local community was the one who was in charge of cleaning the lagoons. I mean, they did all by themselves. And uh, the government, the only thing that they did was send like a bus to put all the fish that was dead. And, but that's it. So you have this discourse of conservation, of, uh, you know, natural protection, federal area, national park, but it's only for the profit of the elites in Mexico, for the elites from the global north. Meanwhile, the local people are suffering uh, environmental racism, ecocide, grief, and all the consequences of this ecological degradation. So I think that, yeah, we have, as you said, Ayana, we have to be very careful with these uh, discourses of conservation and national parks, because I think that national parks can be also seen as very, uh, a colonial name for another form of dispossession from states, settler colonial states to uh, Native American indigenous communities, black communities in the sense that they appear as pristine nature without humans. So again, they disappear, the connections and these human and non-human everyday interaction disappear in these in these names of conservation. And then because of conservation, it is justified the criminalization and the policing of these communities. Los colores son de mi vientre, se alzan con mi raza de bronce, si mi pala viene del maguey, santo huita, santo santurey, los colores son de mi vientre. Yeah, it's reminding me of this term, slow violence, mm -hmm. and how environmental destruction and social injustices can be really invisibilized and even naturalized. You know, I'm thinking through the deep connection and observation of land over time that it takes to notice things like this, like what you're speaking to. So I'd love if you could maybe walk us through how this slow violence can keep us stagnant or keep us from standing up because we don't always see it so clearly in real time. Yeah. I love that you, uh, used uh, slow violence by Robert Nixon because that's something that work and also slow death by uh, Laura, I forgot her, her last name, I will remember in a second, but slow violence by Robert Nixon. I think it, that is exactly what is happening here. And I think that uh, because this ecocide has been happening, I mean, along 20 years, uh, people are, you know, they don't 
take into, they don't see it, especially as outsiders, they go, surfers go, they have, you know, their time in these uh, imagined, uh, uh, commodified uh, body of water for this connection from, you know, even these these other binaries of civilization, all these things that are deeply problematic. But uh, I think that against that slow violence is what I'm talking about, the the power of slowed life while you grieve. And I think that when you counter, you know, try to counter, uh, I don't know, do a counter geography of slow life, and I, and again, when I say slow life, I mean having time to feel, to think. Well, you're doing things like you don't have to actually stop because I know a lot of people have actually, especially in these communities, they have to work. But you can be walking and also feeling. You can be fishing and also feeling. A lot of the women would tell me that when they're in the lagoons, that's the moment while they're fishing. That's the moment where they connect to their ancestors, where they feel peace, where they feel nostalgia, where they feel grief, where they feel the connection to their ancestral, you know, people that live in those lands. So I feel that it is in these everyday forms of violence that we have to put attention. I think that another term that could be here tied to is necropolitics by Mambe, because he talks also about how necropolitics usually don't happen, uh, you know, it can happen in uh, specific moments of uh, politics of that, of targeting a population, but it also can happen in across time, in a progressive time. So I think that these forms of violence that is slow violence, and in this case, the ecocide, uh, we have to pay attention to the everyday forms of denying life to certain populations, to denying the existence. But also I think that we don't only have to stay there. And that's why I think grief feeling is the, you know, the counter resistance to what I call a slow life. Like, if you are living a slow life where you are permitting to feel, to think, to, to connect to the spiritual self, to take care of your community, of the land, of the water, you're also going against this slow violence that is happening. But I think that we need community, of course, and we need to basically, uh, uh, you know, the other day I was... Uh, listening to Angela Davis in an interview and she was saying that hope is a discipline and that we have to have a discipline for hope and I think that we have to basically embrace hope in in these times and I think that against yeah against slow violence we had to also embrace hope and slow life Yeah, I think hope is such a hard feeling to come by yep. these times. <laughs> and I'm happy that you're speaking to it because I think we need to be reminded that another way is possible. And that other way needs us to be slow. We can't achieve different outcomes by 
capitalistic or colonial ways of being. And I think so much of what hope has become, at least in the environmental world, is about techno solutions mm-hmm. or green energy, yeah, um, something really economic or some type of infrastructure. That's what we're being sold of what hope is yeah, uh, or where hope can be found. And so I'd love to just maybe even dive deeper into this feeling of hope because I don't want us to be duped yet again and to hang our hope jacket or, you know, coat on yeah. a long hook, so to speak. That's a weird metaphor, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I think that that's a great point because I also see that, right. That is like green energy, like, you know, all these initiatives that go and center economic, uh, the economic field of the humans. And that is always risky. And that is also always also suspicious. <laughs> because it's like are we also going just again with green green capitalism you know uh just like a sugarcoat form of capitalism to make us feel better i feel that hope is spiritual i feel that hope goes beyond the material and that is in another dimension i feel that uh it's part of this fugitivity that we were talking about i think that Hope is fugitive in the sense that it cannot be encompassed or framed within a material form. I think that hope has multiple forms, and one of them is deeply, how would you say, is almost chameleonic. I feel that in the case of the, the communities around the Chacawa Lagoons, hope is really tied to the spiritual and to the emotional form of the self but also of the collective self. And I think in our case that we are, you know, living in cities across the world, uh, hope has to go beyond the material. And we have to, again, like for me personally, I feel that hope for me is just thinking that uh, we cannot be living a life like this. I don't think that, you know, colonial capitalist patriarchal system at the sets all these uh forms of oppression that we can name and that they never stop and that they change with time i don't think that's a way of living so i think that we have to imagine other forms of life and if we imagine i think that's where hope comes from and i think that's why imagination is such crucial for hope because it cannot be again frame or materialize or grounded in a form and i think that sometimes with this imposition as you said uh, that go into the economic field is trying to cut our imagination to say like, okay, the hope or the hope for environmental, you know, like solutions come into the economic field. But that is such a limited way of thinking and imagining. So I think part of this fugitivity is also imagination. How can we imagine other forms of life? And how can we imagine other forms of relation with the land, with the water, with our communities, with our bodies as territories with care, with solidarity, with love, with tenderness, but also with rage because rage is also powerful and with grief and with sadness. So I feel that hope has to come from imagination and we have to refuse to be materialized in a form, almost contained in a brand. (laughs) And we have to uh, reimagine 
and be capable of being courageous enough to imagine other forms of of living, of reproduction of life. And life, again, as in an ontological life, but also a spiritual life, an affected life, uh, a feeling life, a felt life, a felt thinking life. Like in Spanish, we have this word that is called sentipensar, uh, that it would be translated as a feeling thinking in the sense that uh, when we think, we're also feeling. And when we're feeling, we're also thinking. You can feel with the heart. You can feel with your brain, but you can also think with your heart. And I think all these forms of uh, escaping and refusing to these materialized forms of hope and materialized forms of hope in regards to environment is the thing that we have to imagine. And I think that a lot of Black and Indigenous populations have had the initiatives of imagining other forms. And I think that is also our turn to also imagine other forms of living and other forms of hope. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's like honey for the heart. <laughs> and it's just reminding me that we need to understand alternative ways of being and living outside of state control. Yeah. And I know this is such a big part of your work. So I'm wondering what might it take for alternative ways of being like mutual aid and community support to become common? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm very inspired by the Zapatista movement in Mexico. Uh, For the people that don't know, they're an an indigenous uh, social movement that in uh, January 1st of 1994, they basically said like enough is enough. Uh, Indigenous people have been erased and invisibilized in Mexico. So we're gonna create our own social organization. So basically they're their own, we could say nation within the nation state of Mexico. They have their own government, they have their own education, they have their own health system, they have their own uh, economic uh, system, you know? So basically they escaped the state. They are uh, autonomous communities. And there are hundreds of indigenous communities that are part of the Zapatista movement. And like those are many other examples in Mexico. We have Cheran in Michoacan. That's another community that uh, was defending the forest. Uh, uh, You know, like there were people that were basically cutting all the trees from the forest that were also narco traffic was involved with the state. So it was, you know, there are complicitness in between the state and narco-traffic that is also huge in Mexico. And women from that community in Michoacan also said enough and they organized. And again, they became an autonomous community outside of the state. So we have all these, again, I said, inspirations of imagining other ways of being, other ways of organizing that are not centered to the state. I think we have to imagine stateless forms of organizing and existing. I think it is possible because they're happening across the world, but we have to first know them and knowing that they exist because that is what gives us hope. But also, uh, you know, as you said, like mutual aid initiatives, I think they're crucial to think uh, other forms of organization, even in our own local communities that go beyond the state or outside of the state. I think 
also uh, other forms of economies, such as in Mexico, we have this word trueque, and it means basically like an exchange, but it's exchange not of money, but if I have grains of, you know, food, I can, you can also give me another kind of food or even exchange of uh, labor. I don't know, I'm going to take care of your children if you also take care of my children. Those are things that actually in the community that I was working with, they were are doing it. Like they're mutual, they're doing mutual aid initiatives without calling them that way. So these are practices that are already happening in many communities. That is basically how to create solidarity and how to embrace solidarity when you're facing uh, urgencies of oppression. And I think that Obviously, in this world, we're in an urgency, and it is urgent that we organize. But I think that in order to organize first, we have to imagine and to have hope. And I think that first, we have to see that there are other examples to have inspiration. But I think that many people are doing it. We just have to actually uh, open our eyes, open our ears, have a deep practice of listening. I think that's also something that we need to do a lot, listen more as a radical practice, because I think that people are doing it, but we have to listen and we have to, again, slow down uh, the power of slowness as a practice to, yeah, to imagine, to feel and to organize as well, because that takes a lot of emotional labor to be organizing. But I think that once you are like in this other time, that you're building with others that goes outside of the modern time, that's when you have time to imagine and to create other forms of of living, of being outside of the state, outside of colonial legacies. And also I think that just by being and also centering joy, for example, I mean, with all this grief and with all these, uh, I mean, and I I also want to say that when you're going through grief, it doesn't mean that you're only living grief. Like there are many emotions that can be coexisting in your own body and in the collective body, social body. So I feel that also knowing that grief does not exclude joy, but sometimes it even nourishes it and they are mutual, you know, they mutually uh, nourish each other. I think that that is also powerful because I think in this world, we also have to center joy and pleasure. Uh, and that is something that is also fugitive to these times and to this world and to the state. And I think that when we uh, center pleasure and joy in our lives, in our bodies, in our social bodies, meaning communities, and uh, pleasure and joy with uh, the land and the water, when we have this sensual uh, relationship with the environment, I remember that Kim Talber. She talks about being polyamorous also in regards to plants, to trees, to nature. When we have these also sensual practices in our everyday life, that is also going outside of the state because they're not controlling our bodies. You know, like no one can control our imagination, our feelings, our sensual selves and our joy. And I think to also embrace that and not letting it go is a huge part of hope and organizing and, and building new forms of being and, and existing. Thank you so much for closing us out with those words. I think that 
there's so much to overwhelm us and to feel kind of stifled by, but to remember how to come back to ourselves and to our community and to the earth and believe that another way is possible and put that into action because we believe it and we have community around us who are willing to do the hard, beautiful work with us and together is really, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be closing on that. But before we completely close this conversation, if there's anything else that you would like to add, please take the floor. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I would just say that, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me here. I think it was a beautiful conversation and uh, just that, yeah, that we open our eyes around that. Uh, also pay attention to what is happening uh, in Black, Indigenous, Native American territories that we uh, communicate with local organizations uh, that we and that yeah like i just invite everyone to imagine other forms of being of existing outside of the state outside of all these colonial binaries even in gender and sexuality and also in regards to joy and pleasure and imagination and that we need that and that we need more mutual aid we need community we need a collective life and that we need to keep defending life outside of a materialized form that has been imposed to us Oh, Yoali, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ayana. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today is by Eliza Eden, Fabian Almasan Trio, and Paloma. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Akram. Emily Guerra, and Julia Jackson.